Please take a copy of the Bible, whether it be the blue one in front of you on the P-Rack or one that you brought with you, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 will be on page 2 of those blue Bibles in the pew. We are returning to a study we've been in for the last few weeks on origins, how things have come to be the way that they are. We've been considering that the most from the most reliable source that we have, God's very word, as he declares through it to us, that he made the world and everything in it, including you and me. And he made it originally perfect, well-designed, beautiful, and good for the prosperity of people who were intended to fill it. It has been a wonderful view of a wonderful God at work thus far. But this morning we come to Genesis chapter 3. The world has been made. And now tragically the world will come undone. This is the fall of creation. At the end of last week we read this. Genesis 2.25 And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But at the end of this week's passage we will read in Genesis 3.7 Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. From naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed. What happened? Well, Genesis 3, 1 to 7 tells us how it was that the first man and woman made perfect in the image of God followed a path that led them to undo all the good that God had made them for. Sin destroys life. The first man and woman walked that path, and every person save the God-man, Jesus Christ, has walked it since. Including, I hope you will believe me when I tell you, including you. Including me. So we trace that path this morning, the path that goes from life into sin to death. We want to understand what undid the world and what, if anything, can be done to make it good again. And what might we do to avoid taking this path? The path of sin follows four sad steps through this narrative. And that will be my outline this morning. The path of sin And it's four sad steps. One, temptation. Two, desire. Three, action. And four, consequence. Temptation, desire, action, and consequence. And I'll tell you, the first point will be my longest. Let's begin by reading Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the story is set up. A serpent approaches. This from the biblical story, the rest of the Bible, we come to understand is the enemy of God, Satan. A spiritual being who had been exiled from heaven due to his rebellion against the one and only God. Foreshadowing something, the narrator tells us that this is a crafty 
being whose public front may not match his secret intentions. So he approaches the woman and strikes up a conversation. Let's look at the second half of verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In these verses, we see the first step on sin's path, which is temptation. Temptation. A helpful tip for you if you are reading through the Bible and you're in a historical narrative, a genre that's telling a story with characters, you can often understand more importantly and closely what's happening by following the conversations. So asking who is it that's talking, what's being said, Which way is the conversation going and why? Helps you to interpret biblical narrative. So do that here. And we see that there are three stages to this conversation. The serpent asks a question. The woman answers. Then the serpent makes a statement. And their talk revolves around one subject. God. God and his word. God and his nature, God and his trustworthiness. Temptation is an attempt made by God's enemy to convince you that God isn't good, that his word isn't good, and that there isn't really only one God. Once you are convinced of any of those, Temptation then moves on to encourage you to act in disobedience to God. So we're going to walk through those under this first point, temptation, and look at how temptation encourages us and asks, is God good? Is his word good? And is he the only true God? First, is God good? Notice with this, the, the serpent's question. That's essentially what he's asking. He's saying, did God actually say? His question is suspicious. It's incredulous. It, insinu- it insinuates that God made an unreasonable demand. The serpent plants a subtle idea in the woman's mind that maybe, just maybe, God isn't as good as he seems. That his operating authority over creation is perhaps also unreasonable. Watch almost any hero movie today and you will see this suspicion of authority exalted. Every plot of every Marvel movie seems to rotate around the presupposition that the current powers that be are altogether corrupt and shot through with problems. And the only solution is for a rogue vigilante individual to rise up to be better and more powerful and redeem the whole thing. Our culture is shot through with suspicion that all authority is bad. 
The serpent redirects the woman to see stinginess in God, when in actuality, God had been extremely generous from the get-go. God had said that they could eat of every tree in the garden save one. And you see the serpent going to the opposite extreme, suggesting God said they couldn't eat from any. Now, if God hadn't said this, where did the serpent get the idea? The, the, temptation, the temptation from the serpent's mouth came from the heart of the serpent himself. Sin does not originate from God. It originates from the one who decided to rebel against God. Temptation to sin, the origin of sin, as James 1 tells us, is not from God. It is from creatures he made with the capacity to choose to defy him. Satan and his demons chose that. They chose to defy and die rather than call God good and worship him. You have to ask yourself, given the picture of God thus far in creation, how wonderful he is. How beautiful, how powerful, how generous. What good reason could the serpent have come up with originally to question God at all? It's hard for me to have an answer to that. When temptation comes in your life, it will creep in subtly, which will make it hard to recognize at first. It will appear attractive sometimes. It will look like the shimmer of a jewel in the dirt, glinting long enough to catch your attention. The objective is to get you to reassess and re-examine what you believe. Now you may have, for a long time, up until that point, have thought God was good. You may have been relishing in the wonders and beauties of God and all his faithfulness to you. But in that brief second, you noticed something you hadn't noticed before. You notice someone else has more than you do. You notice how others, for no reason you can think of, have much less than you do. You may have been long convinced up until that moment that the promises of God are right and true. But recently, you've been wondering if waiting on those promises worth all that you're passing up along the way to receive them. And so you invite, just for a moment... Question, are God's promises really all that good? In those moments, Christian, the simple rebuke to Satan's temptation that you can bring is this. God is good. Even if that makes every other person a liar. Jesus answered Satan with that answer when tempted in Matthew 4 that Moses read earlier. Satan wanted Jesus to conclude God wasn't good because God had led him into the wilderness in hunger and thirst. But Jesus answered, God is good. And then provided this response. God feeds the hungry and thirsty with something more than bread and water. He feeds with himself. In the promises of God's word, Christian, there is ample evidence to prove God's goodness in the face of temptation. Temptation begins with the question, is God good? The woman could have ended the conversation there, but instead of being repulsed, she's enticed and shows signs she is beginning to believe that God's word isn't good, 
which is the second feature of temptation. First, to ask, is God good? And then to claim God's word isn't good. Look at verse 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now the woman starts to get the answer right. Until she doesn't. Until she doesn't. If you look at the command God actually gave in Genesis 2.16, go ahead and look at it. Don't take my word for it. You see that God hadn't told the man anything about touching the fruit. But either the man hadn't accurately passed this on to his wife, or she had distorted the command in her own mind. She adds more than God said. And by doing that, God's good laws morph in her mind to arbitrary burdens. Obedience for the worship and enjoyment of God by not eating of that one tree becomes a sense of a duty. Disconnected from an appreciation for God whose word gives life. This is a good encouragement to us that as you read God's laws... Read with the assumption and the expectation and the desire to see that God's laws lead to life for those who obey them. If you don't see that God's laws have life-giving reasons, you will perceive those commands as unnecessary restrictions and obstacles to your enjoyment of life. I know that personally from my own life. When I was 24, I moved to a city, having grown up in a family of Christians, having grown up in a church. I moved to a place, and I thought, no Christian in this city knows that I profess faith in Jesus. And so I decided of my own will that I was going to run from God, that I was going to try out a path of disobedience, thinking that it could bring me joy in life. I am among those who have openly defied God, And followed some other way. And I can tell you from experience. That every word of God proved right. And all my intention and ambitions were folly. I lost my place. Give me a second. The only way to accurately see why God gives the laws he does is to have his spirit open our eyes to welcome his wisdom. So if you don't see his laws as good, maybe you need his spirit. Maybe it would be a good time to ask him for it. In our discipleship, we help each other see why God says what he says. So good conversations to have are exploring together the reasons God says sin is bad for us. Parents, when your kids choose sin, don't just say, don't do that. Help them see the heart of God for why he doesn't want that for them. Why it doesn't lead to life. We don't want to raise Pharisees who keep the letter of the law if in their hearts they aren't worshiping God for his law. Knowing God's word is a protection from temptation to believe that God's word isn't good. Think about how easy it is 
to eat bad food when you're in the habit of eating bad food. It's so easy. But when you start eating healthy and exercising, it's much easier to say no to the bad food because you know it's going to taste good, but leave you feeling awful. The same is true about resisting temptation. Feed on his word. You'll know how distasteful sin is to the heart. Every time Jesus is tempted in Matthew 4, he is ready with one answer. He is ready with one source that he always goes to. It's God's word. He doesn't try out his own cleverness. He doesn't try on arguing with Satan. He answers with the truth of God's word. Satan tempts Jesus to doubt the goodness of God's word. And Jesus answers that God's word is always good. And what's bad is to be constantly looking for loopholes to get around his word. So if you want to be equipped to answer in the moment when temptation comes, follow Jesus' example and commit his word to your heart. Memorize it. David saw a correlation between these two things in Psalm 119.11. He says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you want to be helped in doing this, Desiring God Ministries, you can just Google Desiring God Fighter Verses. And you can download an app on your phone that will give you verses in a helpful way to memorize verses, especially designed to help you use God's truth to answer sin when it's tempting you. Temptation suggests God and his word isn't good. And then thirdly, under point number one, I told you this would be the longest point. Temptation says there isn't only one God. There isn't only one God. Look at verse four and five. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Later in the history of the Bible, as God continues to move things towards sending his son to be the sacrifice and redeemer for his people. He gives at one point along the way, 10 commandments to a nation, Israel, that he has delivered from Egypt and set up to be his covenant people. And those commands begin with this one. You shall have no other gods before me. Obedience to that command is fundamental to understanding that the way the world works, the truth of who we are, and all that reality is, is that God is God and there is no other. We are not. Someone else is not. Some other supposed deity or being among a pantheon of gods is not. Just one true God. And upon that truth is the only way that the world doesn't fall apart. The serpent, however, presents a very destructive command. You can be your own God. You can be your own God. You can actually have other gods besides the one true God. Let me tell you, you can be your own God. Notice all the ways the serpent is calling God a liar here. God said, you'll die. You won't. God knows things he 
doesn't want you to know that will be for your liberation for his, from his authority if you came to find out about them. Your disobedience will make you like God. And though he stated them confidently and persuasively, his arguments were completely false. What actually happened was that they did die. Their eyes were opened, but then their hearts were closed. They were in some really minuscule way like God in knowing evil. But by becoming able to know evil, they become perpetrators of evil. And they become so much less like their holy creator who made them perfect in his image as a result. Temptation, when believed, destroys your life. It does not enhance it. The believability of lies does not make them true. The persuasiveness of deception is not an argument for you to trust it. Anything can be made to sound attractive. But what matters is if what you're being told aligns with what is true. How can you know? How would the woman have known? Well, she could have measured the serpent's claims against the word of God. She could have considered the serpent had no authority over her. He was just as much a creature as she was. But by this point, I think she isn't refuting the serpent because the serpent is telling her something she wants to hear. Friends, isn't it true that we often give in to the battle against sin because sin is what we really want? Or we just want to stop having to think about fighting? Hebrews 12, 3 and 4 encourages us to think about Jesus in those moments. It says, consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted in the fight. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Read subtext, Jesus went all the way to shed his blood for you. In Matthew 4, Satan thought he was telling Jesus something he wanted to hear when Satan offered Jesus the entire kingdom of the world if Jesus would just worship Satan. Satan thought he could be God too. And he offers that as a reasonable way for Jesus to get out of the hard life and hard death ahead of him. But Jesus answers Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. There is one God. Have you been resisting temptation? The temptation specifically to make yourself like a God. With with instead a determination to worship God alone. Have you been wishing for more praise for yourself? Or for the praise you, you receive wishing for it to go to God? Have we been longing for more to spend on ourselves? Or more of our life to be spent for God? Do we get frustrated when our desires aren't met? Or are we glad when we see that our desires are to know and love God? Look out for the serpent's temptation that aims to set you on a path towards sin. When tempted, give a true answer to the lies he presents. God is good. God's word is good. And God is the only true God. 
The path to sin continues, though, in this section. As we see our second main point, the path continues from temptation to desire. Desire. The certain's temptation, sadly, is effective. In verse 6, the woman literally takes matters into her own hands. Look at 6a. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The woman's desire shifted human history from the age of the ear to the age of the eye. She has heard already with her ears what God said, but now what matters is what she sees. See how the eyes and what she sees are repeated here often to emphasize that. It's dominated by vision. What's in front of her. How quick our age is to believe only what we see and refuse to have faith in what is unseen. So let's check the woman's process. The tree was good for food and the delight to the eyes. Okay, we're with her so far. That's true. But that's not unique to this tree. Look at Genesis 2 verse 9. There we read, God made every tree pleasant to sight and good for food. The woman saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, where did she get that idea? And what is wisdom anyway? Wisdom is knowing good from evil. That's true. But that's not all it is. Wisdom is also choosing the good. A fool might know something is bad and still do it. We are only wise when we see the good in following the Lord and follow him. So what happened? What happened? Well, it seems the newness of God's good gifts have faded in the woman's eyes. And now she wants the one thing she can't have. So she rationalizes why it would be good for her to have it. She makes up a reason to have it. To make her wise. But God had already given her his own wise word to believe, which was the real path to wisdom. The woman replaced God's word with her own word and then lived by her word. Desires are flawed and fallible things. Not everything you want is good or good for you. Sometimes you want good things, but then you're not given them. And our desires turn to demand. Unsanctified desires are dangerous. James 1, 13 and 14 says that our own desires actually show up as the common denominator in pretty much all our sin. He says in James 1, 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God can't be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by His own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. So do you see in the narrative how the woman's desires are taking over? There's a fixation on the one thing God said wasn't good. There's an urge to experience for herself what God had prohibited. If you want to detect this kind of overrunning desire in your own life, look for evidence of complaining. Complaining is a symptom of desires run amok. 
We begin to dwell on what we don't have or what someone else isn't giving us that we deserve instead of seeing all that we do have. The amount that we complain about small things and big things in our life shows us just how strong our desires can be and how pervasive. And then we work very hard to defend these desires because we feel strongly that we, what, that we want what we don't have. But in the strength of our desires, stop and consider, what does God desire? Does that matter? Does that differ from what we desire so strongly? Perhaps entertain the thought that we don't have what we want because God doesn't want us to have it. Many times in not giving us what we desire, God is protecting us from seeking satisfaction in what can't fulfill. So, he frustrates our desires in order to train us to want him, to want his will in all things, regardless of whether through it our desires in other ways are or are not met. When the desire for you overrides the desire for God, you are on the path to sin. And this path leads you and me to destruction. In the wilderness, Jesus took a different path. In Matthew 4, desiring to his father's will, Jesus stood up against every test Satan brought. The wise path that leads to life described in Proverbs 3, 5 to 8 is the path Jesus took. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Desire is the second step on the path to sin. Third, action. Action. Look at the second half of verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. I don't think it was until she ate the fruit that she disobeyed because that's what God expressly commanded her not to do and them not to do. But by that point, it's hard to see how she could have resisted. Her heart was already in it. So her hands followed. The narrative here reads like a roller coaster. You know, the, the conversation in the lead up is sort of that like click clack up the steep hill. The woman processing her desire going up over the crest. And then the momentum and the gravity kicks in and it is a steep plummet down from there. It's a blindingly fast sequence. She desires, she takes, she eats, she gives, boom. In a split second decision, in the time it took to pick a fruit from a tree and take a bite, sin has ripped through the fabric of all creation. Friends, sin does not have to happen slow to have a long train of consequences. One rapid fire from your mouth and you can burn a relationship down. One moment of passion and you can ruin lives. One impulsive urge and wreckage. Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel. Samson and Delilah. David and Bathsheba. Judah and Tamar. Moses and the rock, Judas and the money, 
Sin is false worship. The woman offers her entire self to the worship of something other than God. Our outward actions in sin are done with a complicit heart desire inside. We cannot accuse our eyes of wandering where our heart doesn't want them to go. And when we act in sin, we're raising defiant hearts and hands against our creator and the good world he made. In the order of the passage, I don't know if you noticed this, but it is an anti-creation story. Because in chapter 2, when the good world is being made by God, it follows this sequence. Man, trees, creatures, woman. But in chapter 3, it's creature, woman, tree, man. God put mankind to rule animals, but it's the serpent, the animal, that's telling the woman what to do. God put man over the garden, but you hardly know the man is even in this picture until he's finally mentioned near the end. And God gave the man the role to lead his wife, and yet he follows her lead to disobey God and follow their mutual desires. It's an anti-creation story. What could the woman have done in this situation? What could the man have done? What can we do when the urge to reach out in sin is so strong? Well, we can listen to God. And obey him instead. We can give our hands and our hearts to God. Instead of ourselves for him to use for his worship. This is what Paul encourages us to do in Romans 12. 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore brothers. By the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now in humility, though we as Christians aspire to live the way Paul encourages us to, we also admit, as we've already confessed this morning, that we don't always do this. And instead, we follow the path of sin with our own actions. Which leads us to the fourth point. The destination of sin's path. Point number four, consequences. Consequences. We'll explore more of the consequences next week. But let's look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now remember in God's perfect world, nakedness was a symbol of fearless enjoyment. Nothing to be scared of, nothing to be ashamed of. Just enjoyment. But in the broken world, now nakedness is fatal exposure. All of a sudden, they knew they needed covering. They needed to hide. They needed to be hidden from each other, hidden from creation, hidden from God. Sin's consequences now are that mankind is now exposed to the effect and curse of sin on the world. What about all those promises that the serpent made? They had seemed so alluring. It had all made sin seem so rewarding. Oh, but now the bitter aftertaste. Despite the promise to give, sin only takes. What they had is now lost. They can't get it back. They had all the trees save one. And now they'll enjoy none of the trees. 
They had innocence and peace and joy. And now those are lost. They had a world in which they believed that all they needed from God, they had. And he was happy to give so much more. And they were able to receive that without any doubt or any anxiety about tomorrow. And now it's gone. Friends, when we see the ruin in sin's wake, don't you wonder, Lord, why would I ever not trust you? Why? Why am I so prone to wander away from your goodness? Sin opened their eyes for sure. But not in a liberating way. The serpent tempted the woman to think that on the other side of defying God, she would be a God. But she is not a God. She's still a creature. He's still a creature, only now they're no longer free but slaves to sin. They could see evil now because they could see it on themselves and in themselves. They were guilty of disobedience, of pride. They were ashamed, and sin now binds them. It was no good to humanity to know what sin was. It turned out that knowing what sin was also means knowing that we are sinners. Simply knowing what sin is has never freed anyone from it. You can know there is sin in your life, but you can also not know what to do to be rid of it. And repeating sin only increases the bonds of our slavery to it. Adam and Eve try to do something about the consequence of their sin. They try. At the end of verse 7, we get the first reference to man and woman making something. It's ironic that made in the image of God to create in a way like him or to work the creation in a way that honored him. The first time they actually act on it is in a way to hide from him. In the two chapters before, God made everything for them. Now their tragic first act of mirroring him is to take leaves and cover themselves, knowing that God now sees them as guilty. And what they make is completely inadequate to cover them. Just a strand of leaves woven together. I mean, it's hardly effective. Not sufficient. Definitely not permanent. All the while... Did you notice the one who got them into this mess? Where is he? The serpent is gone. We won't hear from him until Genesis 4 when he whispers murder in Cain's ear. He only shows up to do damage. He will have no part in healing. A consequence of sin we don't often think about is how it turns us inward. Before all this happened, Adam and Eve were turned upward and outward, enjoying God, enjoying each other, enjoying the world he made for them. Now they're looking at themselves and they're trying to fix their problems on their own. You see, when we're convinced that we need to be our own God, we assume that we don't need the real God, even after we've seen that we aren't him. It's part of Satan's deception to keep us trapped. It's a deception that keeps tricking, even after we've seen how the wicked illusion works. If you turn to yourself to solve your sin problem, then the best you can do is fig leaf underwear. 
It's the best. That was mankind's solution for a completely undone world. When standing before God who says he wants the world and us to return to him in the way he made us completely clean and pure and holy, the best we have to offer is filthy rags. We need something much, much more. Mankind needs a sufficient covering. We'll see next week how God provides that temporarily by sacrificing animals to make them clothes. The blood of a sacrifice presents them with clothes. But the consequences of sin remain, as does the need for a payment for the crime of destroying God's good world. Genesis 3, 1 to 7 ends in a cliffhanger. What started good ends in evil. All because the man and woman walked down sin's twisted path of temptation, desire, action, and consequence. And as a result, we learn, having followed Adam and Eve in this path, we need a way out. We need a covering. And God has provided both. The hope of humanity now resides in the mercy and grace of God. The one who knows fully sinfulness and who will still act to provide a covering for our sins. The outstanding, the astounding thing about Genesis 3, 1 to 7 is that there is anything written after it. Or that any of us lives any amount of time in the sinful nature we are born into. We have all wrecked God's world. We have all wrecked our own lives. We have all doubted God's word a lot. We have all worshipped ourselves more than God a lot. God knows every action we've raised our hands to do to defy him over the course of our lives. Friend, if he knows all that about you and you are still alive, and some of us are even still using the life you've given us today to defy him, then come to see that there is so much mercy in God for sinners. He is waiting patiently. So as to show you grace and me and to bring us repentance. If God closed the book on Adam and Eve due to their sin or on us, we would be finished and his justice would be satisfied against us rightly. We would have the death we deserve. God, the supreme sovereign, would be vindicated for squashing our treachery and our treason, our rebellion and our attempted coup at his throne. But in mercy, God gives A covering. He gives a substitute. He gives a man to come stand in the place where all the other men and women have fallen. He gives his only son, Jesus. Jesus comes as the new Adam. And as we see in Matthew 4, he doesn't defy God. He defies God's enemies. He stands under temptation and he resists. He trusts God's word. He desires only to do his father's will, not the will of the serpent. He obeys with all his heart, with his soul, with his mind and his strength. He shows us what living in the new creation looks like even while he was inhabiting the old. He did all this for his father and he did all of it for us. Without his righteous life, without his spotless record of obedience, we would not have anyone to come stand in our place. 
You know all those times you've messed up and sinned and your first thought has been, I just need to obey God better. Can I suggest that when we face the reality of our sin, we first say, thank you, Jesus, for obeying for me, even to death on the cross. Jesus in his death becomes our covering. He's the sacrifice needed to provide the pure blood payment for our guilty lives. His arms stretched out on the cross become the shield to absorb the wrath of God against our rebellion. His atoning death providing more than enough cover for any and all who come underneath its shadow. His blood clean enough to forgive and cleanse you of every evil deed. And his resurrection powerful enough to raise you from death to life. We are tempted and deceived. Our desires are tainted at best, wholly selfish at worst. We've raised our hands in rebellion. We stand in the external exposure of our sin before a holy God. What is there to do at the end of this treacherous path called sin? Cry out for Jesus. He will come and he will cover you. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience by which the sinner can be made clean, by which the unrighteous can be called righteous, by which the naked and ashamed can be clothed and welcomed into your family. Thank you, Jesus. We are sorry for our sin. We see what part it has had in ruining the world you have made. Now, Holy Spirit, help us to walk away from it. That for us, obedience to you would be our joy. Lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.